Hello and welcome to BB on the Record, this podcast from British Bandsmen. I'm Mark Good, editor of British Bandsmen, and in this episode I chat to freelance performer, conductor, educator and adjudicator Brian Allen. Brian has enjoyed a long and distinguished musical career, from travelling the world with celebrated chamber group Fine Arts Brass to staging the Brass Explosion Festivals in Birmingham, and guiding the next generation during his tenure as head of brass at the Royal Conservatoire of Scotland. The 63-year-old was recently diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, but he isn't letting it get him down and is in the midst of a fundraising drive to help support young people to buy brass instruments. It's seeing him aim to walk 500 kilometres and run 500 more. Brian reflects on his career and returning to his banding roots, but begins by discussing how his crowdfunding project came about. Well, it came about mainly because, as people would have might have picked up from my Facebook post, I was um, diagnosed with Parkinson's disease uh, a few months ago. Uh, it wasn't really obvious on my Facebook post. I sort of did it in a subtle way to sort of drip feed the information, and I have been telling it to people. So this is a way of just extending that news a little bit further to those that didn't pick it up from that situation. So I thought it would be nice for two reasons, mainly... Uh, to try and do something nice and raise some money to help young brass musicians, but also for my own physical health, because one of the best things to do with Parkinson's is exercise. So I thought, here we go, 5K a day. Let's just go for it. So how is the running and the walking going then? Where are you in terms of getting to that 1,000 kilometre target? Well, I'm I'm literally, I reached yesterday, I reached 400 kilometres. I actually started the fundraiser in December, but through entire, of the entirety of November, I'd also been practicing. So I did it in November as well, but I'm not counting that towards the final target. So I started counting the, the, the kilometers in December. And I've literally, in December, I did on average just over 5K a day. And then in January, I opted to six and a half. And in February, I've been doing 7K a day. So I'm just trying to increase it a little bit as I get there. And there's only literally, since Christmas, there's one day I haven't, I haven't done it because it was my mother-in-law's birthday. But other than that, we've been to the gym or we've been walking outside and running. And Heather's been joining me as well. So we've been doing that every day since then. So it's going very well. I've reached uh, about 40% of my financial target and 40% of my running target as well. How are you feeling within yourself as a result of the physical activity? Well, I'm feeling okay, actually. I mean, uh, there's all sorts of... uh, posts and online stuff about Parkinson's and if you read all that you would you know just give in and sit down in a chair and roll up in a corner and be done with it but there's also lots of positive stuff out there and I'm taking the absolute positives from it and it can be a very slow burner it can affect people very quickly but it can also take 10-20 years before it gets more serious and I'm, I'm hoping I'm in the latter category and it's a slow burner so far the evidence is like that um, I'm on medication and it seems to be working quite well I actually feel feel okay. I've got some limitations in my activity down my left side of my body. So my left arm is a little bit affected and my, my dexterity in my fingers. So I'm, luckily I'm a trumpet player and not a French horn player. Otherwise I'd be absolutely snookered. There'd be no more Vizuti fingering exercises to be done because I can't really move my fingers very well in my left hand. I've got some pain in my left arm and my left leg uh, and left arm have a little minor tremor, but it's not inconveniencing me too much. And I'm actually... There's nothing that I'm not able to do at the moment, so I'm, I'm just trying to keep as busy as possible 
and things like conducting help and certainly the running and the walking help tremendously. So I'm not letting it get me down, basically. Well, it's great to hear of this positive attitude and, and this resilience. On your fund, how's it going to work and who's going to be eligible to benefit from it? I'm going to keep it very, very simple. I don't want to get stuck in, uh, in difficult processes. So literally, I posted out on Facebook yesterday that I was now ready to, to hand out cash because I have almost a couple of thousand pounds in the fund already. So I'm ready to start giving out. So the intention is that anybody that's young, and by young, I'm defining anybody that's in, still in education, full-time education. So it could be a college student. It could be a primary school child. Uh, it could be attached to a brass band. It could be anyone that's young and wants to play or is playing already. If they need help to buy an instrument, so it, it could be that they just want some cash towards the cost of it. I might give them two or 300 or 400 pounds or something like that. Um, I also have some instruments, a couple of my own trumpets I'm adding to the fund to, to loan out. And um, Buffet Cramp and I met with you and Miko the other day. They've given me a, a Bessing Protégé Cornet, which is still to be handed out. And there's various other offers of instruments coming from some really nice people that have got in touch with me. So there's, there's two things. There's the cash to hand out to help people buy either instruments or accessories, or there's actual instruments to loan out. That's how it's going to work. And literally all they have to do is write to me with one letter of recommendation or email me or write to me or Facebook me and then just plead their case and then chances are they'll get some help. I'm sure there will be people listening who may wish to donate or support your project. So where can they go to, to do that? Well, if they want to help, which I'd be very grateful for, they can literally just go onto the Just Giving page and put my name in, Brian with a Y and Alan's A-double-L-E-N, and the page should come up. One is for Parkinson's UK and one is for the Instrument Fund. So there's two separate funds. Obviously, I'm channeling most people towards the brass one if I can, because that's the one where I can do more useful uh, help to people I know. But if people want to donate to the Parkinson's Fund, they're very welcome to do that too. And much, much appreciated. Well, Brian, we wish you well with your continued fundraising for this very worthwhile cause. Now, you're clearly someone whose life has been immersed in the arts and specifically brass music. Let's take a little trip back in time then. How did it all begin for you in terms of getting involved in this world of brass music making? Well, my father was a, was a cornet player, primarily in, his, in, in our local band in Stamford in, in Lincolnshire, but he was also a player with the, the famous Gus Band in the 1960s. And I actually conducted a band on Spectrum last night and that brought back lots of memories because I was at the first performance of Spectrum in 1969 it's, I've encountered it a few times since. So my father was involved in that. So it was a really nostalgic piece for me to play. And I then moved to a place called Loughborough where the band was more active than it was in Stanford and actually encouraged more young players. And I got playing along with some really other well-known, turned up to school one morning at a primary school and there was a brass quartet there, sat there with people like Richard Bissell in it, well-known French horn player, uh, and lots of other well-known players. So... Uh, I got great encouragement in the local band from a guy called Bud Fisher, who's quite a bit of a legend in that in that sort of world. Then went to university and joined the band at the Birmingham School of Music. And I was part of the band that had that historic moment where we drew number one at the Albert Hall and gave the premiere of Volcano and came third, which for a student band was quite some achievement. Um, the band is no more, but that was great times. And I also got involved as a conductor with a, with a band at the age of 18. I was conducting the Leicester Foresters band which was a championship section band. So my conducting career started then at the age of 18. Then I got into the brass quintet literally as soon as I left university and that started up. And my involvement with brass bands finished for quite a long time. I didn't do anything, didn't go in a band room, I think, for about 25 years at that point because I was too busy 
doing orchestral music and doing the quintet. So it's later life that I've then come back to Little Brass Bands a bit now. So I did the Brass Quintet for about 17 years or so, I think, at that point, and that was, that was, those were great times. When you were talking about being part of the ensemble, being part of Fine Arts Brass, I think you're chatting about, was chamber music making always a passion of yours or, or was it something that you kind of fell into? I fell into it, I think, a little bit. I was I stayed on at university to do um, a master's in, in the music of Messian, so I was heading more down the academic route uh, and had a had a, a, a desire, I think, to become a university lecturer or something like that. And then just to keep my trumpet playing up to up to speed, I got in touch with four like-minded players, one of whom was Steve Roberts, who's well-known in the brass band world, Andy Coulshaw, Simon Hogg, and Owen Slade, also a well-known tuba player. Uh, and we just had a rehearsal one night and instantly we clicked together and it sounded what we thought sounded great. So we decided to give it a go and we couldn't really believe how quickly it all took off. And within a couple of years, we were we were starting touring all over the world. We did about 70 different countries, I think, in total. So we had some great times. I think I did over 2,000 concerts with the, with the quintet. And at some point we were giving concerts three, four, five times a week. So it was pretty intense. What would you say to young or emerging musicians who are considering or perhaps haven't yet considered the idea of being part of a quartet or a quintet or something like that in terms of the potential opportunities that it might bring, but also in terms of the skills that it could develop? For me, it's the best sort of music to be involved in as a brass player because you are you don't have a conductor for a start, so there's nobody else making decisions for you. It's all, it's all down to you. And in a quintet, you've got a, a majority. If three people want to do it one way and two want to do it the other way, there's usually an easy decision to be had. So it's great fun. Of course, you've got to be proactive. You've got to be organising rehearsals. You've got to be seeking the gigs. In the days when we first started doing it, there was no social media to, to send out messages, no Facebook pages. We literally sat down, printed out letters, two or 3,000 letters every year, and sat in, our, sat in my back garden and wrote in hand all the music clubs and festivals and places of people that might engage us. We worked on the assumption that if we wrote out 2,000 letters and got a 1% success rate, we'd get 20 gigs out of it. And then from one of the, each one of those gigs, we could potentially get another four or five gigs from people being in the audience. So it just literally mushroomed. The more gigs you did, the more gigs you could get was, was our philosophy. And we think, we think it worked. We were certainly the busiest brass group working in Britain at the time. In terms of the skills that you learn, I think it's, it's, it's great because the, what we tried to achieve was where the, the group sounded better than the sum of the individuals. So we tried to achieve something that sounded, you know, better than we were, all were individually. And we tried to create our own identity. So we, we made a pact from the beginning that we wouldn't play any pieces that other groups played. We'd, we'd do all our own arrangements and we'd commission all our own 20th century work. So we had quite a reputation for opposite extremes. We had a big reputation for playing contemporary music commissioned about 50 or 60 works from leading composers, but we also had a reputation for doing lighter stuff. And at the time, we then we were, I think, the first brass group to get their own series on Radio 2 and on Radio 4. So we did quite a lot of shows on there, which gave us quite a high profile at the time as well. But all our own music was predominantly written by Steve. Others chipped in as well, or we played, or we played uh, new works commissioned for us. And we usually put at least one or two in those, of those in every concert. You were heavily involved in a series of brass explosions as they were built at Symphony Hall, Birmingham in the 1990s. For anyone who may not know, tell me a little bit about those events and the sort of engagement they received from the brass community. 
Well, they, they were one of the first types of those events that happened, I think. And we managed to get the, was, when I say we, I'm, the, a colleague of mine, Richard Adams, who was, who was in another brass quintet called Cambrian Brass and was a great colleague of mine playing in orchestra as well. Uh, and has been working in Singapore recently, but he's now back in Derbyshire, I see. We, we put an application together. I can't remember whether it was a year of culture type thing where there was funding available. And we put an application in and, and got a little bit of funding. But we mushroomed an event around certain events. And everybody that was doing brass instruments, we basically managed them, got them to organize a concert within our festival and put it all under the one umbrella. So that, that was the start of the big brass bands things because we did one of the first brass band gala concerts after the, after the in Symphony Hall. And now they have them every time after the Open. But we did those outside of the Open the first time because I got quite friendly with the manager of Symphony Hall. In fact, that's why the Open is in Birmingham now because it had one year in, in the Bridgewater Hall in Manchester. And I went with the director of Symphony Hall and we went to watch the Open. And then we had a, and Andrew sort of thought, well, we think we can do this better in Symphony Hall. Because at the time, the Bridgewater Hall didn't have any foyers or any really, didn't even, I don't think the toilets were even up and running at that point when they had the Open. So we decided to put an application in and he attracted the, the Open to, to, to Birmingham. So that's still there now, of course. So we had a couple of those massive gala concerts. And I think at the first time we had Black Dyke and we had Ferry. And the rest, as they say, and with the British Open going to Birmingham, yeah. is history. Well, let's now, Brian, turn our attention to your piece of the podcast. I know you could have picked one of an almost infinite number of pieces, but tell me why you've chosen this piece. Well, you asked me what my favourite piece was, and I have so many, it's very hard to know. And a lot of them are orchestral or or not quite from the brass band fear, but there are many pieces within the brass band world that I love too. And usually one of my favourite pieces is one that I've just been working on. So I literally just done a rehearsal on contest music and on spectrum. So both of those two pieces came to mind. But then I thought we just did a concert, 150th anniversary concert with Whitman last weekend. And we had the great Mike Lovett as guest soloist with us. And one of the pieces we played in that was a Louis Armstrong medley, which, which I thought was great fun and loved as well. So, and I happen to know there's a recording of that available. So that would be my choice to just put something very current and easy listening for everybody to, to also hear Mike play as well.
The magical sound of Mike Lovett, the trumpet soloist with Whitburn Band. That's a live recording from the band's 150th anniversary concert, held in the Howden Park Centre in Livingston very recently. It was the piece of the podcast, as chosen by my guest today, and the conductor in that recording, Brian Allen. Brian, a major part of your professional life has been spent at the Royal Conservatoire of Scotland in Glasgow, formerly the Royal Scottish Academy of Music and Drama, where you were head of brass and instrumental performance. It's a busy brass department, perhaps slightly smaller than some of the other conservatoires, but that offers plenty of opportunities. It's also rather a close-knit department. How do you look back on those years at Scotland's National Conservatoire? Well, I look back on the years with great uh, fondness, of course, Mark, because you were one of the students there, and it was uh, there's so many people that have passed through the building while I was there, and to now sort of see what they're all up to now is 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 just great and very encouraging. Everybody seems to have found their niche, even though you weren't quite sure at the time when people were at college exactly what they were going to be doing ten years time. They all seem to have found their their role in life. I mean, literally for me, that was the first job I'd ever applied for. But after about 15, 16, 17 years of touring around the world 
and sitting in the back of the same car with the same five people for an awful long time. I thought it was just time for a change. And I'd always fancied a job like that in education. I thought it was not really a lecturer's job as such. And this job came up and, and I was fortunate enough to get it. So uh, I absolutely loved it. But again, after about 16 years of that, you get tired down in academia. And the further you go higher in an institution like that, I started off just as head of brass and was really very closely involved with the students. But as the years went on, I got involved in the conducting course. I was involved in organizing the orchestras. So other things took over a little bit and I got less involved with the brass players and the job became not less enjoyable, but slightly, slightly different. And then again, after 16, 17 years of that, I thought it was time for a change again. But great times and I have many memories. And actually, as part of the fundraiser, what I'm thinking of doing at the end of it, it should be around about June time, is organising a reunion of students that were at the college when I was there. Because I have seen a couple of Facebook posts from those students saying, when are we going to have a reunion? So I thought it might be quite nice to try and organise something like that, where people can come along and have a social event, but also play, put a couple of large ensembles together and maybe have an auction or something just to finish off my target at the end of the end of the journey. It sounds like a terrific idea and a great way, hopefully, to bring people together as well. Now, working in that sort of position as head of brass, I'm sure, brings all sorts of interesting challenges at times. One of the annual challenges, I guess, was the fact that people would be coming to audition. And you'd probably have that balancing act, trying to find the right players for the college, but also the right instruments for the college's needs at that time. Just how much of a balancing act was that process each year? Well, you mentioned that it was quite a small department, so it was quite difficult to have the right balance of instruments. For instance, you played the bass trombone, Mark, and if we had three bass trombones, it was ideal. If we had four, it was a bit of a glut, and if we had two, it was a bit of a crisis. So just trying to achieve exactly the right numbers on those instruments and on tubers and things was quite difficult. Um, we usually managed to get it, but the size of the department was about between usually 40 and 50 students. So we needed on, on average about 10 or 12 trumpets, similar amounts on the horns, similar on the trombone, four or five tubers and, and that sort of thing. To have a functional department where you could have good ensembles within each year group, but also overall. I think mostly we achieved that, but you're open to whether people decide to come or not. So one year, for instance, I offered six French horn players. They were all good, so they got offered everywhere, and none of them came. And then the following year, because we were a little short of horns, I offered six more horns, and they all came. So you, you know, it was, and that was completely out of my control whether people people came to audition, whether they then accepted the place or not. But I think we did a good job in persuading people. Once we knew we wanted somebody, the audition became a different sort of thing. The audition became us selling the college to the students, which I like to think we were quite good at. And as you say, the small department gave people fantastic opportunities to be in things from the word go. So I think, you know, it's a little bit out of the way for, for a lot of the students who live in England to come to Scotland, but what we offered there was a very attractive prospect and we managed to achieve that, I think. You were involved from around 1995 until about 2011, and of course we're now at 2022. But during your time there, Brian, did you notice a, a change perhaps in, I don't know, the standard of the students when they'd arrive in first year out of high school? Uh, not really. No, I think, you know, in some years had some some exceptional talent in and other years were a little bit less consistent. But I mean, there's always been great young players out there and it was our, our difficulty was attracting them to come to the college because 
every good young player that's out there is going to be in demand from four or five different colleges. So, you know, we're, there's only a limited talent pool and there's several places all trying to attract that talent in. And we don't have quite the amount of scholarship money that some other places have to compete with. So we were competing with um, by using things like offering more one-to-one tuition, for instance, and having a bigger basket. I, I used to teach at Birmingham Conservatoire back in the 80s and 90s before I came up to Scotland. And literally, there was a one-to-one lesson and very little else. There'd be a symphony orchestra and a brass band and things like that. But there weren't repertoire classes. There weren't all these myriad of small ensemble activities that go on in a college today. And all the other colleges are doing them now, but they weren't back then. So, you know, I think we led the way a little bit in that, in offering this basket of opportunities for students. And it's it's still going like that now. And in fact, we saw the fruits of that labour just recently the brass department at the RCS I think was delighted to be able to perform again in front of an audience again Mike Lovett was performing with the students just a few days ago it's probably fair to say though that the RCS doesn't have an ingrained brass band culture in the same way that maybe the RNCM or the Royal Welsh College does that said in first year on the B must degree this year is Andrew McMillan, a tenor horn player who I think might be one of the first tenor horn players to study on that particular degree. Was it ever an ambition of yours, Brian, to establish some form of brass band oriented course or degree to the conservatoire? Absolutely. It was a, it was a, it was a big old aim and ambition of mine to get some more brass band activity in there, but I ran up, up against several hurdles. There wasn't, there wasn't, um, a problem with the college. The college were open to the idea, but with just a small department, we're only taking in seven or eight students a year. If we were to, to have a full-time brass band in there, which those students would need as an outlet for their playing, couldn't just ghettoize them. They'd need to have regular activities to play in. In order to do that, we'd need to have tenor horns and baritones taken in. And then we would have to sacrifice by not having as many trumpets or French horns or trombones. And it was just not possible to achieve that balance. And also we'd always need three tenor horns minimum, otherwise the band wouldn't function. We'd need two baritones. You know what the instruments are. And we didn't have five or six of those seats. We didn't have soprano cornet players and all these sorts of things. So it just became too difficult to do that without compromising our other activities. So we decided that the best way to do it was to have a brass band, which which did function every turn, but not not didn't meet every week. So that the same players could get experience in a symphony orchestra, a wind orchestra, a brass band and a brass ensemble. And those that were really keen on it, we would encourage them to go and play with the, with the bands in the town, like Whitburn and the co-op and places. So we would be then helping all the local bands as well, ideally, and that our players would still be able to still be able to um, get their brass band activity without it all coming at the college. Good brass playing, of course, is good brass playing in whatever context. Every trumpet player I know professionally started on a cornet, and most of them still play. And there's there's a there's a strange brick wall between the you know the brass band world and the orchestral world and really it's, it doesn't need to be there it's just music and it's just a brass instrument they're the same instruments pretty much what about you brian what has your musical life looked like since moving on from the royal conservatoire of scotland has it been a freelance life a combination of performing and conducting and coaching and so on it's been exactly that mark it's been playing teaching adjudicating uh, and conducting. And uh, initially, one, one of the things that I uh, hadn't done a lot of in my earlier career, I played in orchestras a lot, but I hadn't done a lot of the really massive orchestral pieces. So one of my first goals was to was to uh, immerse myself in, as a freelancer in orchestral 
activity. And I was very lucky for the first few years that, you know, literally the day I came out of college, my next gig the next day was was a Shostakovich five with the BBC. And I also did a Mahler five the following week and a Prokofiev five the week after that. So all of the nice, fantastic big symphonies. So for a few years, I, I did a lot of that. Got myself re-involved in brass bands a little bit, but only only a small amount initially. Did lots of um, things like adjudicating and, and took on a little bit of teaching too. So yes, it was it was a really varied life. But, but unlike a lot of people who have a full-time job, I think there's a sort of reticence to leave a full-time job because of the salary. I'd been freelance for 20 years previously for that, so I wasn't afraid of being freelance. You can get sacked from a job, but you can't get sacked from all of your freelance work in one go. <laughs> so <laughs> in some ways, it's not as fragile an existence as, as some people think. And it's certainly varied and, and, you know, makes you be versatile with all your skills. I, I, I love freelancing. It's great fun. You've recently found yourself conducting Whitburn Band, yes, in West Lothian. And that included a terrific collaboration with the big band trumpet star Mike Lovett, who appeared in concert with the band recently as part of its delayed 150th anniversary celebrations. How are you enjoying working with Whitburn? Well, I'm, I'm really enjoying it, actually. It's, they're a really great crowd to be involved with. There's a real sort of family atmosphere in there, and they're, they're really, really hard-working band. So it's great to be involved with them. I've been involved for about four or five years now, but actually a couple of those have disappeared due to COVID. So the concert that we just did last weekend was scheduled two years ago in June 20, but never never happened at the time. And other stuff went by the way as well. So we haven't done as much work, concert activities we maybe like, but we're, we're, we're addressing that situation now. Of course, I was due to do the Brass Pass competition as well, and that's been cancelled twice, and now been cancelled again for a third time, I think. So that's another one that's gone out of the diary that I was I was quite looking forward to doing. So yeah, I've been getting involved in in, in brass bands again. Has been it's nice. You always, if you have involvement in bands as a child, you invariably come back to it in later life, and once it's in your blood, it's in your blood. But it's getting nice to play some of the pieces that I that I played as a teenager years ago, like Spectrum. And then to come back and actually conduct them and or maybe play them again is, is just it's just great. So I'm loving being involved in the bands and I'm not doing as much playing just at the moment because COVID knocked that on the head. I am still playing, but obviously all the freelance type work dried up and it's only just really starting to come back again. And ironically, the first playing gig I got offered again clashed with my first trip back to Germany because I'm also conducting the band in Germany and that. That's been uh, silent for 18 months. And we had our first rehearsal back in October with the German nationals planned for actually this month in February. And that's been cancelled again and put back to October. But I'm due back there next month. So hopefully that will go ahead. And it's actually, incidentally, it's the man that runs the German band, Martin Lesser, but a really great guy. He's the neurologist. And it was him that diagnosed my Parkinson's. Because I had symptoms of this throughout a lot of last year, since since probably March last year, so over the last year, and and I tried to persuade several doctors over here that I thought I might have Parkinson's, but nobody believed me. But then I went to Germany, and Martin gave me some tests, and within 15 minutes, told me exactly what I had. So then, when I came back with all this written down, all the exact diagnosis, and took that back to my doctor here in in Perthshire. They sent me straight off for a, for a, to a neurologist and for a scan, which confirmed it all. So I have to thank Martin for that. Blimey, what a turn of events. Yeah. Well, as we approach the final moments of our conversation today, Brian, we know it's been a very challenging couple of years courtesy of the pandemic, and the arts, of course, has suffered in and amongst that. 
all being well, rules are gradually relaxing and live in-person activities are returning. I know you're a very positive person. How are you feeling, though, about the weeks and months ahead from a performing arts perspective? Well, I, th- I think it's great to see things opening up again. Well, I did feel sorry for a lot of the young players that had just, for instance, come out of college and was were, were on their first steps to trying to attract work and get started, and then everything shut down. It must have been terrible for them. It wasn't so bad for me because literally it brought on a slightly early retirement or semi-retirement, semi-required, you might want to call it. So I was able to sit in my back garden and enjoy lots of golf and with my wife and do some gardening and, and literally... COVID, like for many people that have got, you know, some financial stability, COVID wasn't too bad. Just being asked to sit at home for a bit. And since then, work has gradually opened up a little bit. But I don't really want to be that busy. I'm, I'm quite happy just doing bits and bobs here and there. So I'm as busy as I am, you know, as, as I want to be at the moment. But I'm hoping that it's all going to open up again for those younger people who are getting started. So there are encouraging signs out there. And certainly within the band movement and within the orchestral movement, things are opening up quite a lot. So... Let's hope that, that there'll be a resurgence, and I think, I think there probably will be. That's it for this episode of BB On The Record. Thanks to Brian Allen, and thank you to you for listening. To support Brian in his fundraising quest, go to justgiving.com and search for Brian Allen. That's B-R-Y-A-N-A-L-L-E-N. You can enjoy a digital subscription to British Bandsman. It costs just £42.99 for one year. For the latest news and interviews, make sure you don't miss out. Go to britishbandsman.com and click on subscribe. As for this podcast, you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Spotify. Or just ask your smart speaker to play the BB On The Record podcast. Please leave a review if you can, the more the merrier. Join me next time on BB On The Record. Bye for now.